Good Morning Sleepy Town. I'm Beau Bartlett, and you're listening to The Art House. Art House Radio on 88.5 WCUG. Coming to you from way down in Columbus, Georgia. From across the tracks at 9th and Broadway. From the Carpenters Building at Columbus State University. Thanks for being with us this morning on the radio. Thanks for joining us on the Art House. We have a guest today. Our guest today is Wade Schumann from New York City. How you doing, Wade? I'm good. We're so glad to be here. We're so glad you're here with us. Thanks. We have a quote of the day. The quote of the day is from Sigmund Freud. The only person with whom you have to compare yourself is you in the past. The only person with whom you have to compare yourself is with you in the past. Sigmund Freud. That's a good one. I heard another quote the other day that reminds me of, and it was something like this. It was like, who you want to make proud is your eight-year-old self and your 80-year-old self. Who you want to make proud is your eight-year-old self and your 80-year-old self. That's pretty good advice. I would say 97-year-old. <laughs> Because hopefully we can live that long. If we're healthy, yes. Yeah, that's yeah. true, too. 80 is when we're sort of at the pinnacle of things, probably, hopefully, maybe. No, no, or 100. It gets better. I mean, we're getting older and older. Okay, so we have a good show for you today. Wade is going to pick out uh, quite all the music, I think. You're going to DJ all the music. I hope so. And Wade has got a, a band, so he's an artist and a band member. And we're going to hear music selected by Wade Schumann, who is in town for the Compotera exhibition at the Bo Bartlett Center. So uh, what's the first piece of music we're going to play today, Wade? We have Dana Falconberry. She is uh, a young woman from Michigan. I was on a compilation album with her, so that was how I heard it. And I think this is literally a perfect song. Everything about this song is perfect. Dana Falconberry. Wrote a letter, I send it downstream. I hope the ink doesn't bleed too much. I hope that you get to read it love Sunday I fold it up into a paper sailboat I send it off with a wave and a kiss And I will sit on the bank like this Waiting
go for walks Sunday afternoons There's a path in the woods I take There's a sweet sound the trees make When the wind blows I pick up sticks I take them home When you answer my note Sweetheart Paper Sailboat by Dana Falconberry, chosen by Wade Schumann, our guest today. Wade, do you, do you have any insight into that song? Yeah, no, I just think, you know, often a song, you have lyrics and you have music, and they're not necessarily intertwined or one as strong as the other. In this case, I think every part of the song fits perfectly with every other part of the song. And I just think it has a remarkable, melancholy, wistful, poetic sense. I have some questions for you. First, I want to introduce you a little bit. Wade Schumann, uh, married to Kate Javins, part of the Couples, Artist Couples Exhibition at the Center. And uh, you were born in 1962. Very good. In Cambridge? Massachusetts. Uh, And you went to RISD for a while? I did. And then that was back in 1981-ish? Uh, 80. 1980. And then you went to PAFA with the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art, my alma mater. I actually took time off and traveled for a year, mm-hmm. which I consider part of my education. For sure. Living on the streets and on $7 a day, playing music on the streets. Well, and and, and then, then I went to PAFA. PAFA. You wound up at, in Philadelphia. Graduating from PAFA in 86 with a Certificate of Fine Arts. Correct. Now you are an instructor and director of painting and art history and painting and drawing at New York Academy of Art. That is correct. And you... I've been there since 1994. Wow. Influencing lots of young students. Thousands. And I hear about it. They Hopefully tell me. good things. <laughs> I hear the good things. And you also have a band, Hazmat Modine, which goes back, way back. Uh, I started the band, I think, 97, 98. And we have traveled worldwide since then, to about 40 countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, tour regularly, mainly 
in Europe, but we've been to China, India, Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, Mexico, did concerts in Siberia. Truly, do you think of it as world music? In Europe, we're considered world music, which is unusual because for whatever reasons, uh, American music is generally not considered in the world music category. Mm -hmm. But that's because you pull from so many different genres. Yeah, we're influenced uh, by African music, Central Asian music, West Indian music, all sorts of things. You grew up in Michigan? I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And by loving blues and um, I grew up American. I mean, I had I have an older brother, seven years older. So when I was seven, he was fourteen, and obsessed with music. So. I had no choice. Music was just a huge part of my life. We lived in a small house. He played piano. So, you know, and this was 60s and 70s. So, you know, I was hearing pre-war American music, blues, early jazz, but also, you know, the Beatles and uh, the band. But he also listened to Romanian and Bulgarian music. So all of that came together. And then in my late teens, I was just uh, musically omnivorous. So how did, tell me how you got here. Here in the universe or here in Georgia? Mm -hmm, That's an open-ended question. Well, well, I've been thinking about this because I've been thinking about you Mm -hmm. and uh, how organized you are and how I think when you're a young artist, you're full of hope and you don't plan ahead that far. Maybe a month, maybe a year Everything is going to work out. And that's basically how things happen in a way. You think you plan, but you don't. So I had never planned to be a teacher per se. I just thought, oh, I got this giant studio. Remember that studio was 4,000 square feet. It was really expensive. It was 600 bucks a month and I had to support it. So I'll teach classes. And that's how I started teaching. (laughs) And then it turned out I was good at it and I loved it. So I'm still a teacher now. Did you teach in Philadelphia first at the academy or did you teach locally in Philly or did you go to New York to teach? I think the first class I taught in Philly was at the Academy of Natural Sciences. They had a live animal unit. So I taught animal drawing. Then I taught at the Pennsylvania Academy. Then uh, I had my first show in New York in 1994 and the New York Academy the then direct uh, head of faculty came, saw the show, and asked me to teach. I should say you show with uh, Forum Gallery in New York. Yeah. Animals are still a big part of your life, your practice. You, When you teach, you uh, bring animals into the classroom, don't you? Cows, kangaroos, mm-hmm. alligators, Live. lizards, frogs. Yeah, everything. Live ones, not stuffed ones. Uh, we do have stuffed. We also have insects. We have a fish day where people go to Chinatown and get fish and octopi, cephalopods. Um, But yeah, that's one of the discoveries I had fairly recently. Looking back at my family history, they were all obsessed with animals, Mm -hmm. all of them. My great-grandfather, who is an artist, constantly is writing about birds, talking about nature. It's part of the heritage of that side of the family. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to be in your studio and in your space and see your collection of things. I've saved up the word of the day till now. 
so that you can segue into our animal speak. But uh, you have a word of the day today, don't you, Wade? I, I did. Uh, I, I I would have liked to have thought it over because the word of the day uh, seems extremely significant. But the only thing that popped out was the hyrex. What the heck is a hyrex? Wade? A hyrex is a small, lumpy animal that lives in Africa. Uh, it is directly related to elephants, but it's about the size of a bread box or a rabbit. And it is unrelated to rabbits. It has tusks and funny looking feet. There are two kinds. There's the rock hyrix and the tree hyrix. They live in groups and they look kind of grumpy all the time. <laughs> Interesting fact that the Iberian Peninsula was named after the Moorish word for hyrex uh, because when they visited the Iberian Peninsula, they saw these rabbits and they assumed they were hyrex. So the word Iberian has its origins in a Semitic word for hyrex. <laughs> Who knew? I knew. So that's how <laughs> misinformation spreads rapidly. But hyrex are lovely animals. You should look them up if you have... Spell it for us, please. I think it's H-Y-R... A-X, I'm guessing? A-X, yes. Uh, Hyrex. It sounds like something Dr. Seuss would write about. To me, they look like large animals that happen to be small. Mm -hmm. Like a tiny rhino. Kind of, or a tiny, pissed-off, grumpy... Rabbit? Woolly rhino with tusks. Maybe but woolly no, rhino, rhino, no, rhino rabbit? Yeah, something like that. A rabbit with tusks that climbs in trees. It sounds fascinating. Yes, that's the hyrex. It. Hyrex. There is okay. the rock hyrex and the tree. See? Okay. Uh, so, okay, well, uh, thanks for that today, Wade. We appreciate that word of the day. We would have not gotten that word of the day anywhere else. I hope not. <laughs> So let's see. Where were we in, in your in your history? You uh, so your your love of animals, teaching at New York Academy, uh, bringing animals into the classroom for students to draw live, even big animals like cows. Cows. Um, and what about Horses. art? Art wise, what are you working on? Art wise, what do you have going? So on? I was working on a during COVID. I um, was staying in the barn in Maine. My parents lived in Maine and my mother's studio was in the barn. And I didn't really want to live in a space like that with oil paint. And so I did a series of ballpoint pen with acrylic drawings of local animals. So I was interested in that. So barn swallow, a catamount, which is a Another word of the day. Yes. Do you know what a catamount is? It's the, day for, it's the word for tomorrow, but go ahead. <laughs> it's a word for every day, as far as I'm concerned. Catamount is a old word for puma or mountain lion or panther. C-A-T-A-M-O-U-N-T. Catamount. Catamount. So that's what you've done lately. I did that. I did some drawings of toads. Uh, I did a number of drawings of highland cows, which are these massive... Scottish cows that basically look like somebody's wig grew to be the size of a Volkswagen. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, I saw those. You posted those on Instagram. Yeah, you? they're really dramatic, beautiful creatures. What uh, is your Instagram account in case I wanted to look that up while we're talking here? Wade Schumann. How do I spell Schumann? S-C-H-U-M-A-N. And Wade is like Wade in the water. Correct. Uh, I think it's time for a music break. I would love to have a music break. What would you like to play for us? Uh, give us a couple of selections here. Uh, we have a song by Basaku Kuyati and Ngoni Ba. Uh, he's an amazing musician from Mali. It's his entire family. His wife sings, his children sing, he sings. They all play uh, some version of Ngoni. Um, and Ngoni is... Uh, essentially the ancestor of the banjo. So the banjo comes from Africa, was brought here uh, by African-Americans and then had its own manifestation uh, as what we know of the banjo today, which is a five-string instrument. But the origins pretty much come from the Ngoni, which is an instrument that has the skin head Mm-hmm. Um, and Basaku Kuyati is a master griot, one of the great Ngoni players of all time. And very interesting, he takes kind of traditional Malian form, but combines it with uh, modern harmony and also uh, uses uh, guitar pedals on it. So it's this kind of, it has the um, soul of the past and the knowledge of the present and the sound of the future. Fabulous. Let's hear it. Jamako, 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 Jamako,
Basaku Kuyati and Ngoni Ba. I would like to hear some of your music, Wade. I think there are listeners who would like to hear some of your music. So what, what would you choose if you had a piece to do, just go ahead and uh, let us hear something that you, that you do? Uh, all right. So keeping with the general mood, I suggest the song Box of Breath, okay. which um, is the title track of our last CD. The band is Hazmat Modine, of which I am the leader, and the song was written by me and Eric Della Pena. This also has um, Bala Kuyati, who is a Malian uh, balaphone player. The balaphone is essentially the ancestor of the marimba. Okay, uh, it's an, a percussion instrument that's melodic that has wooden tines, and uh, it has somewhat buzzy vibrating gourds under the tines which they use spider webs in and bala's family is the oldest griot balaphone family in all of west africa they have supposedly the first balaphone ever found supposedly it was found in a field created by god thousands of years ago i was the, wondering who the oldest was and the balaphone has its own building in mali and once a year, they take it out and they play this balafon. In this case, I'm playing, uh, my main instrument is harmonica, but in this case, I'm playing uh, a resonator guitar. Um, Eric's playing a six-string banjo. Uh, then there's the horn section. There's percussion, multiple vocal overdubs, and the balafon. This is somewhat stripped down. Okay, and this is the title song of uh, your recent... Album, release? Yes. And what's it called? Box of Breath. Secondhand notes Putting on the dog But curled like a spider It's fat of the hog And water off the eider You can take what you want And have what you will But life is too short Just to get yourself killed Hey! Ghosts, dandelions, and 
daisies, some pumps and rabbit toast, charred bones and gravy. If you had what you want and did what you could, you'd still be unhappy, misunderstood. You can make what you can and get yourself mad, but you've got to get good before you can be bad. We're older now than we've ever been, but we're younger now than we'll ever be again. Hey! to the Art House on 88.5 WCUG. I'm your host, Bo Bartlett, and we're here with Wade Schumann. Wade, tell us a little about Box of Breath. So the title comes from, a, a, I have a very good friend, Scott Lehrer, who's a, an amazing engineer. And, and for years he worked, uh, you know, for NPR, for public radio and stuff. And he would have to edit, uh, and this is in ye old analog days, he would have to edit people's conversations and he would snip out breaths that people because people <sighs> exhaled so he cut them all out and he saved them and he put them in a box no yes and uh so he had hundreds of boxes of of breaths in this box and i just love the idea that this box contained the breath of you know some very famous people he told me i'm not at liberty to mention their names some of them may be the voice of God, perhaps. So he had all these breaths in this box. And I just thought that was a, a, a beautiful analog breath. And I thought that was a beautiful metaphor for life because you only have so much breath. And your body is essentially a box of breath. Uh, it's also a good um, kind of metaphor for the harmonica, which is my main mm -hmm. instrument. And the song is kind of about limitations of time and life. There's a lot of things in the song. 
about history and time. So in the recording, you can hear, if you listen really carefully, because I understated it, there's a lot of punctuated rhythmic breath looped in there. You know, the Hebrew word ruach, ruach, you, you know that? It's, the, it's what God breathed into the clay or whatever that made man alive as the breath of life. I mean, breathing, I often think about whales. They live in one element, but they need air. But they spend all their time in the water. They have to come up. It would be as if we always had to have water around to breathe in the water. <laughs> It's strange to think they don't live in the thing that they need to survive. Right, it is, isn't it? Nature's funny. Nature is miraculous and inventive. Nature has a sense of humor. Yes. And we're in it. Absolutely. You're, you're sort of a na naturalist, I think, in a way, Wade. I think that everybody finds some place where they find some kind of truth that they feel wakes them up to the miracle of living. And for me, the fastest way to get to that place is through nature. And and I, I don't understand that Most people don't feel that way, but that's how you this morning at breakfast, uh, we caught that little chameleon and just looking at all those beautiful, tiny scales and this incredible emerald skin and its eyes and the fact that it's alive and running around and eating flies. There's nothing more fantastic. You know, people look at their phone and they think, oh, this is incredible. Look at this technology. And then I think... Look at the fly that's flying by. It can fly. <laughs> It can reproduce. It can taste things. There's nothing more miraculous than that. But we take it for granted. Mostly, we take most things for granted. I think we recognize ourselves in nature. When, when I was a little boy, I'd sit in my backyard and play with those chameleons. They were, I was friendly with most of them. And they, I would hold them close or just get down on my belly and look at them face to face. And those beautiful little eyes, those little eyes that were so full of wonder. Those little chameleon eyes. Or fear. Some giant mammal is holding them, yeah. Yeah, probably terrifying. But uh, just face to face, and there's a kind of, you know, I'm here and alive and you're there and alive. And yeah, moment of that's it. Recognition. And some people see that in trees or plants or music or good food, you know. I see it in light. Yeah. Light just literally turns me on. Yeah. It lights me up and it, it makes me realize, holy crap, we're alive and that, like, this whole thing is happening right now. It, 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 it brings me to a kind of consciousness that it's like there's this overwhelming inexplicable wonder that we're here when I when I see light fall on something and it and that's why I paint and I paint to try to capture that and lot. some of the you know it's funny because mostly we don't see the sun rise mm -hmm. we we like to look at sunsets mm -hmm. but in some ways the most remarkable thing I've seen is sunrises in Maine yeah you know five in the morning and it's just this clarion, unbelievably beautiful, intense light coming up. And you know the whole day is in front of you. So light, consciousness, the sunrise, the eyes of a chameleon, 
we are brought to consciousness by these things, by the wonder of wonder of nature, and not so much by the wonder of technology, but um, by the wonder of nature. And as as painters, we're both painters, and you're a musician. The inspiration of much of what we create comes from these wonders. You're here of, as part of the Compatera exhibition at the Beau Bartlett Center. You're here uh, with your spouse, and we've had some conversations about what it means to be in relationship mm. and uh, love and art. It's, we've had some conversations just in, you know just this morning and uh, last night about the difficulty of being in relationship and being an artist and with another artist and uh, as opposed to just you know one artist in the mix. It's always a work in progress. It is, isn't it? Life, art, relationships, it's always a work in progress. No matter how long a relationship has existed, there's always the grains and essence of its inception. You know, so I would mm -hmm. see my parents uh, in their 90s and my father would still talk about meeting my mother at the Red door bookstore in Chicago mm. and asking her out and so much of his love for her was based on the story of that love. Isn't love like that? You know, here's the thing. It's impossible to understand reality, but we can understand stories. Yes. So one of the things we do is we explain everything around us through stories because they simplify and Narrative is a way to go from one moment to another moment. And I think, getting back to painting, as a representational artist specifically, uh, narrative and telling stories is a way to connect to others mm -hmm. because we all understand narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, just, I got up this morning, I had cinnamon toast. That's a narrative. Right. And it's fundamentally symbolic. You know, every narrative has an analogous poetic or symbolic aspect. You're putting food into your body. So that's a miracle. You're, you're doing something incredibly in, intimate. You're taking a substance and putting it into you. And from that, you continue to live. Do you think that narrative is superior, more important than other aspects of uh, image making? Both image making and literature. I mean, I think like, uh, but let's go with image making. I mean, I think narrative is a very open concept, mm -hmm. you know. Explain. Uh, well, again, if somebody's just eating cinnamon toast, it's somebody, you know, like the question is narrative a story with, you know, iconography that is very specific, or is it open? Um, I think the moment we give something name, we're giving it a narrative. By narrative, by your definition, need to mean that the, the uh, viewer or the chameleon needs to be doing something? No. It doesn't. It's doing something by being. So it's a story just by being. Correct. That's interesting. I, I, I think of narrative as being more narrative than that. 
<laughs> yeah, but they're all different kinds. But in every chameleon is the history of evolution, the history of all chameleons, the birth of that chameleon, the, the eventual death of that chameleon. The narrative in, is implicit in its presence. Implied narrative. Right. How does the creator, the painter, nudge the viewer to, to grasp such? Well, there are many different ways. I can say as a figurative representational artist, form trumps all. So how you feel about the physicality of being, of the physicality of things, is literally how you're depicting that form. And something that can be unique to that artist. But your primary way of expressing that is the representation, the physical representation, which is form. And that's the thing, you know, as a representational artist, how do you feel about something? How is that represented in the form? Do you love it or do you hate it? Or is it sad or is it angry or is it sharp or is it cold? How you do a nose, how you do a finger, how you think about cloth. Those are all decisions you make about representing our physical being. It's the hardest thing to do as an artist, but in some ways it's the most profound. And you know, because you spend a lot of time looking at things, like one of the gifts we have as artists is we just get to look at stuff. Yeah. Like what an unbelievable thing. And when you really look at stuff, it's astonishing that it stays together, you know, the things to, that it's there, yeah. that, it, that it exists. Uh, in the macro and the micro. I like to think about narrowing it down to like that there's just, just really just two things. There's form or matter and there's light. I know that's really like getting it down. Like if you were to make a um, pixelated version of the Mona Lisa, you're getting it down to like, you know, to the biggest m possible pixel version of like two or three colors, but it's like in the end, like I think that there's form or matter, substance and 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 light. And and shadows and, and darkness don't really exist. They're just where the form or the matter blocks the light. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, but there are great artists who don't really use light as their language. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I can think of... You know, if you look at a beautiful drawing by Ang, for instance, yes. that's entirely linear, or, or Holbein, for mm -hmm. that matter, mm -hmm. uh, he's thinking about form in its absolute sense. Mm -hmm. He's not thinking about how necessarily light reveals that. Mm -hmm. You know, he's uh, it's present in the fact that this is an optical illusion and an optical idea, but it's not a primary form of communication about structure of form. Right, it's full frontal light, like the way later on Norman Rockwell uh, mimicked that form of full Yeah, light. or Robert Crumb or Mobius. I mean, in the graphic world, you know, some of the greatest, to me, some of the great American artists were cartoonists. Mm -hmm. Windsor McKay is not using chiaroscuro. Right. At all. Mm -hmm. He's thinking in graphic terms. Mm -hmm. um, so I, 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 I take slight umbrage at <laughs> you. You're emphasizing light as, but uh, I agree personally 
um, the light is uh, transformative. Is there a hierarchy of uh, of thinking in terms of uh, uh, dot line form mass uh, weight uh, full chiaroscuro you know light and shadow uh, is there a hierarchy or is it are they all just coexisting side by side? I think every artist makes a different combination of different elements to end up with a language. Uh, and, you know, what's interesting is the decision, you know, uh, Surat, for instance, is essentially a closed form artist using an open form language. Mm -hmm. So he's thinking in linear terms about volume. He's super reductive, uh, but he's using you know, dots and dashes to communicate that, right? He's using an open form technical language, but his sensibility is closed form, which is a linear language. So it's this weird synthesis and you recognize it in Surat, how strange his work is. Yes. It's so synthetic. Mm -hmm. It has ideas of observation. You know, he's using optical color theory uh, to create ideas of representation, but it's entirely synthetic and made in his studio on his own without observation, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so for, for me to think that there is some sort of hierarchy between, you know, going from dot to line to, you know, weight mass, um, chiaroscuro, is, is sort of a Eurocentric, high Renaissance concept of like what great art is, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a hierarchy in terms of Western art the foundation of European Western art at a certain point becomes the notion of illusionism. Yes. Volume. Yes. But everybody riffs on that in different ways. You know, what's volume for Titian or Bellini is completely different than Bronzino Pontormo mm -hmm. because the sensibility is different and the priorities are different. And that's what's exciting. That's the beauty of art is that Surprisingly, there seems to be infinite ways to come up with a solution to ideas of representation. Mm -hmm. And all those ways have different feelings. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing that I can never get over, and it's a little like, you know, nature. I can't believe how much stuff we make just yeah. as creatures. Like, just think of us as, okay, so we're mammals. We make an insane amount of stuff. There's a stuff everywhere. No matter what, we make stuff. Yeah, yeah. And we take that stuff and we send it all over the world. You know, there's some factory in China making little plastic frogs or something. Yeah. And that stuff just ends up all over the world. So we're like really busy. Yeah, we are. We're makers. We're makers and we can't stop... And we just surround ourselves. And sometimes I'm just so overwhelmed by the stuff, my stuff, future stuff, past stuff. It's a blessing, Wade. We get to do it. We do. But then the question is your own stuff. Like this is what I've been thinking about since both my parents passed away. And we have stuff going back to the very long ago. Every object, you know, to me, like the pen you're holding in your hand, somebody designed that, made by somebody in a factory, sent over here, and you're holding it in your hand. Writing and with it. And one day, writing with it, your thoughts, uh, and then one day, 
that pen will be given to somebody or discarded or somebody absently minded takes. That's a narrative. It's a narrative of an object. And our lives are full of intersection constantly with objects that are coming and going, throwing out, given away, handed down. Each one has a story. And, you know, one thing my wife always says about me that's different than her is that I believe objects have souls. Like, I guess I'm an animist in the sense that I think souls also exist in things. Mm -hmm. So I get attached to stuff. Things. Yeah. Yeah. She does not. She wants, mm -hmm. she finds objects oppressive. Mm -hmm. um, so the question is, what is our responsibility to these things in our lives? That's a fantastic question. I think there are a lot of people of the younger generation. Don't younger, want. Than us. They don't want stuff. My son, man in New York, like he wants no stuff. Like to the point of like, you know, not even like collecting any things that I would think would have meaning, art or otherwise. I mean, he's got a few things in his collection. But the the bottom line is like, why have stuff? Because you can see everything on your phone or you can see everything and you don't need to own it. And I think we have, we come, I come from a generation where it's like, if you love something, bring it into your life, own it, revere it, almost worship it and let it supply the meaning it has to offer throughout your life and then it'll you know go on and wind up somewhere else at some point but i believe in objects and meaning and to me it, it, it they supply meaning and so I, I i believe in them um do you ever worry about what will happen to these things when you're gone they'll mean nothing to anyone probably right but but they mean something to me while i'm here but you don't mind that they get discarded eventually or thrown out? Sometimes I like to think that I'll give them to the center and they'll put them in a little box, <laughs> a little box of breath. I need my own center for all my stuff. Yeah, yeah. You got to get a center, Wade. <laughs> uh, I mean, right now I'm particularly enamored of a rock that I inherited from my mother. Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with this rock. Yeah. I keep this rock by my desk. It's from Brimstone. Do you know Brimstone? Have you ever yep. been there? No, I've never been there. It's no. an island... Uh, in, in the Penobscot and all the rocks roll constantly. Yes. So the whole island is made of perfect black oval rocks. Mm, beautiful. And they make a sound. Sure, I know that sound. We have that on Metinicus. And, uh, and this rock, I just think of the thousands of years it took for this rock to become absolutely smooth. You got to have a rock. I keep a rock in my pocket. All the time. Yeah? Yeah. You got to have a rock. Personal rock. Yeah. And I, I get it, and it, wherever it came from, and I write real small in the back where it came from, so I keep that memory, and I just hold it. Because that's you got to hold the memory of place. It's a way of remembering. I think objects are a way of remembering. And that get, adds importance to life, or meaning to life, for me. Let's see. Um, I think it'd be a good time for a music break, Wade. All right. All right. Good. Let's hear some music. I, I think after all that rambling, our listeners need a little music break. Thank you. 
song is called Moving Stones, apropos of our discussion of having a personal rock or stone in one's pocket. It's actually, it was written, um, most of the uh, Hazmat's music is written by myself and my partner, Eric Delapena. That was written with him and I and uh, Stephen Elson, who's a saxophone player. And it's about Eric's father, who lives in upstate New York and has been building a structure in a meadow for 25 years wow. out of rocks and stones with mosaics and grottos and obscure 
uh, critiques on society and it's and it's now becoming kind of famous because it's this kind of outsider structure it's his full-time job moving stones uh so well we wrote that song about eric's dad fabulous you know uh at the end of carl jung's life like after he had been a, a psychologist and a writer and everything near the end after the red book and everything uh as i understand it he spent much of his time at the water's edge just building cairns, just stacking rocks, finding some sort of great meaning in the uh, layering and stacking of stones. Yeah, because, you know, we live in a very transient world. Everything's organic, so most things rot and fall apart, but rocks are pretty constant, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, the oldest structures we have that human beings have made are made out of rocks. Mm-hmm. So they carry time and history. Yeah. Yeah. Great song. Thanks, Wayne. In our conversations about uh, Compaterra, did you have some insights about uh, the couple, artist-couple's relationships and the pairings in Compaterra? I mean, I just think it's such a great idea. It's such a beautiful show. You know, we tend to think of artists as solitary, like our, our romantic ideas, Van Gogh, out in the fields, sweating and, you know, working as this solitary genius. But, you know, the truth is that there are many, many artist couples. Um, and the fact that um, I, I just love the idea of seeing the work together with people and how they share or don't share uh, certain visual commonalities, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's kind of an unthought about way of looking at the creative process. So I just think it's a marvelous show. Um, I'm very Thank pleased you. and grateful to be included in this show. So glad you are. And, um, you know, uh, I think afterwards you should do a exquisite corpse show. <laughs> you know what the exquisite sure. corpse we is. We play exquisite corpse up in Maine all the time. Yeah, you know. uh, but for the, our listening friends out there yes. it comes from the surrealist um the surrealists uh were always trying to find ways to unleash the unconscious mm -hmm. and one way is you just take a piece of paper and you one person does a drawing on the top and then folds it and another person does a drawing in the middle and fold another person does a drawing on the bottom you end up with something that not one person could invent mm -hmm. uh and of course you can do it with writing as well it's we used to do that in high school. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another form of kind of unconscious, unintentional, uh, direct collaboration. Yes. Um, but, you know, the whole idea of collaboration, uh, I, you know, I have to say for myself, um, you know, when you're married, that's a collaboration. But there are also artists that collaborate. And, and in fact, like all the songs I write with Eric... Uh, that has been a huge joy in my life to have that assistance, uh, musical collaboration. Um, and it's totally enlightening to me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the, the concept of the show, Compaterra, the word Compaterra is a Latin word, which means instead of competing the way it, the root, it's root, the root word for the word competition. Uh, but in terms of our American version of competing is sort of one against one, winner take all, 
you know, or tribal team against team and winner take all. Whereas Compaterra in its original form meant uh, two striving together, you know, for the betterment of both or for the betterment of all. So you're actually doing the best work you can in concert with another person and that for the good of both. So both will rise up and do their very best work together, um, individually and yet together. So, I mean, it happens over and over again. It happens when artists, uh, artist competitions, you know, as artists are competing with one another, trying to each do their very best work. I think that's an example of Compaterra. And in the relationships, you know, you had Diego and Frida, you had, uh, Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner, um, Ed and Nancy Keenholz. Exactly. Thank you. And so, the, you know, and the, the artists that are in the Compaterra show, such as um, April Gornick and Eric Fischel, um, John Curran and Rachel Feinstein. In our conversation, we had Wade Schumann, uh, Kate Javins, Inka Essenhigh and Steve Mumford and myself and my wife, Betsy Eby. So in these conversations where all of us are, are doing our very best work we can in relationship to our partner and the, and each feeding the other, uh, feeding the other's creative soul and each willing the other to do the very best they can. And part of that, I think, is a reflection of yourself. You know, you want that other person to be a success because they're in a relationship with you and it, it, it makes things easier if they're doing great and, and succeeding. So it's not just a altruistic uh, concept of goal. It's like, if they're doing better, I'm doing better. All boats rise with the tide. So, And, and if we could start to think of that concept as breaking out, uh, like fractaling out and being a larger concept other than just in the, you know, from the micro out into the macro, then we could think about that in terms of the larger world or in the lar- in terms of the country. Like if, if we could get our siloed aspects of, of the society, the red or the blue states or what are the Republicans and Democrats, if we could realize that there's a higher concept out there that we could all work toward together where we could have Compaterra in the sense of all of us working for the betterment of all, then it becomes a concept that's more important than just the individual relationship with the two people. It, it's, a, it's a concept that can actually help save the, the world, the quagmire that we are in. <laughs> yeah. Also, I, I think what's fundamental is that you have two people, you make different things. And one person makes something that the other person can't make by the fact that they are not that person. Yes. And so... The fact that this person is making something you couldn't make is a way to open your mind to the world, what yes. can be done. And I think in terms of your idea of it affecting how we view the world in general, that's a really, really important thing, you know, not to want everybody to be like us, yes, but to celebrate different ways of viewing things. Yes, and, and to go back about how we're compelled to just keep making things. Stuff. Stuff, yeah, object stuff. That, that you know, we'll make a million things that are useless and mean nothing before the one person comes up with the idea for the ballpoint pen. Right. Which allows people to write and communicate. And it's, it's one concept, one idea, like a million monkeys typing Shakespeare eventually. We just... We just all are making stuff and then we have to believe in it. And every now and then one of those things will have worth and will make a difference. Right. There's also the feeling we get when we're making 
that is a sublime feeling mm. and that is in some ways more important than the thing itself because it's a time when we're present in a way we're not at other times. I think that is it. That's it. Being present. And the creative act bringing us to that place of being present in the moment, realizing the wonder of this existence. Our guest today has been Wade Schumann with Hazmat Modine, artist and musician extraordinaire. Thanks for being with us today, Wade. It's a great pleasure to be here. We actually go way back. We didn't even get a chance to talk about it, but we, we actually had a band together, the Bad Aesthetics, way back in the day. A performance band. It was really performance group. It was. Yeah. yeah we had a good time. We had a lot of fun. That, <laughs> it was sloppy and uh, full of spirit. Uh, and I think that's where your special word was invented. Plythe. Yeah. Yep. I yep. first heard about it at that time. Revealing the Plythe was the title of one of our pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Bad Aesthetics. Yeah. You won't find them anywhere, but they exist in our distant imagination. Thanks for joining us today on The Art House. <laughs> 88.5 WCUG. You can hear us uh, on the internets with at arthouseradio.com. That's A-R-T-H-A-U-S radio.com. I want to thank our engineer and producer extraordinaire, Show Irakawa. Thank you, Show. And that will do it. Let's let's do a real quick rundown of the music. We started with Jake X. Fussell, Columbus's own Jake X. Fussell with Frolic. And then we heard Paper Sailboat by Dana Falconberry. And then we heard Jamako by Basiku Kuyati and Ngoni Ba. Thank you for doing that, Wait. And then we heard Box of Breath by Hazmat Modine. Moving Stones by Hazmat Modine. Thanks for joining us today on The Art House. Get out and see some art. Get out and make some art. We have but one life. So let's live it and let's make this world a better place. See you right back here next week. Love and light, y'all.